you're listening to a Better Mousetrap podcast. I'm your host, Marcos Dinnerstein. Every week, I bring you an important player in New York City's tech scene, and maybe as important, I also shine a light on the newest players. What each of them does matters. And today, as often, we're coming from WeWork Labs, and I have with me John Liu, Chief Product Officer with Fusion, a financial blockchain platform. So first of all, thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, I'm very excited to join your podcast, and hello, everybody. Excited to tell you more about Fusion and blockchain. Cool. And yourself, let's start with your background. Um, how'd you get into this world? Yeah. Uh, Okay, so um, 18 years I've worked in Wall Street, and I've traded credit, uh, fixed income bonds for about nine of those years, and I've built product technology solutions for the remaining nine, servicing what we call the buy side, which is what you hear about asset managers, and the sell side, which are gonna be your banks, like your JP Morgans. I got into blockchain actually about two years ago. I always thought in my head, when I was trading bonds, the process was insanely efficient. Right, you know, I had to make phone calls, I had to send Bloomberg chats, all to communicate the same information to like three different times to three different banks. So I figured blockchain was a very efficient way to clean all that up. And I investigated more and more and actually ran across Fusion. That's, that's my story. So Fusion, Fusion was a company that was already in operation and seemed to be addressing some of the things, some of the issues that you noticed yeah, they build themselves as a financial protocol, as, as you kind of introduced. What caught my attention was this time-based concept, which we'll probably talk about a little later today. But uh, every single instrument that I trade in, bonds, it revolves around the concept of actually borrowing cash and or actually sending cash at a different set of times. So when I read that concept, I wanted to meet the founder, DJ. And we spent more months together and really just refined what we can do with his libraries to support all the different financial instruments that I've come across. At the same time, bring all the benefits of blockchain, right? The immutability, the out-of-the-box auditing. Why is a blockchain needed and what does your solution do better than a, uh, the existing financial platforms using traditional databases? Yeah. Blockchain is good when you're aligning loosely aligned parties, right? Uh, and by loosely aligned, I mean everybody roughly wants to do the right thing, but they don't fully trust each other. So this is perfect in a case where I've got different banks, different investors. Everybody wants to treat each other fairly, you know, in my optimistic view, right? We want to make fair markets. We want to buy and sell markets at the fair place. And we want audits all to come through nice and clean but that's not always the case in the real world, right? Where blockchain helps is you have all these loosely aligned parties, they can come to one central source of truth now. They can join into this system and they can share and benefit from each other's data as opposed to replaying the same data such as who I am or what bond I've traded a million times, which introduces all different kinds of errors into the system. Okay, so let me jump in because there's, there's the uh, phrase that's often used in the blockchain world about the truth. Mm. So, as we all know, garbage in, garbage out. 
So if the initial data was untrue or in some way flawed, doesn't that muddy the waters? Uh, isn't the truth in the, um, in the verifiability and the transparency of, of the interactions, not the underlying data? Can you clarify that yeah, difference? Absolutely. You're correct. Garbage in, garbage out. So gob blockchain doesn't solve that problem at all. Right? If, if we have bad players who at the very beginning decide to say, hey, I'm just going to lie and, and put in incorrect transaction amount or, or falsify my records, we can't stop that. Obviously, your counterparty is going to figure out that you put in some bad information. Right? The system checks itself just as a traditional database or a traditional counterparty type of relationship. But you know, using another example outside of finance, you know, food supply chain tracking, it, yeah, you know, we have to trust that the person who says this is an organic mushroom or organic pork is actually doing the right thing. What blockchain helps, though, is that once it gets into the system, you can track where it comes from. You have various participants validating the information that's already on the system. Right? So if you did lie, let's say, about that your pork or mushroom was organic, it's much easier to track you down and actually find out and expose you as being a bad participant, and you're kicked out of the, kicked out of the chain. OK, that's clearer then. So the, the, the verifiable, verifiability of the transactions allows for more effective policing yeah. Of, of the individual participants in, in a set of trans transactions. Yeah. That, because you're auditing every single thing, right? So again, if you lie about who you are and you come onto the chain, we can't stop that. And you see it today in the financial, in Bitcoins or any of these other financial blockchain protocols that are out there, right? There are, there are hacks, right? People come in here, they take your private key, they pretend someone that they're not, things happen. But in theory, the technology itself, the whole purpose is to track and audit Right, all this information as part of an out-of-box offering, as opposed to somebody entering information differently, hacking information, a little database over here, and maybe another counterparty down there, hacks in information a little differently. The whole system suffers in such a case. Okay, so this immutability, this transparency, the fact that it's all time-stamped, these are the uh, these are the values that are among the values that, that, that you guys are offering with the blockchain solution. Uh, how do you validate? What's, what's your proof system? Uh, proof of work, proof of stake? Uh. Yeah, so the consensus, which is how we validate things, as you're saying, there are different consensus mechanisms out there. Every day I turn around, I'm actually seeing another different type of consensus mechanism. What we use right now, we use the proof of stake, right? which means that we have People who own our utility, our tokens, they can basically state those tokens and serve as a, as a validator on a node, right? And they basically say, okay, this transaction is good, you know, and they're going to forward all that information to the other nodes. That's kind of how the consensus mechanisms work. That's, that's the trust now in the blockchain system. But what I want to get to is the consensus mechanism should just be another component to the blockchain world. So I should not care whether it's proof of stake, proof of work, or proof of whatever they have out. You know, down the line, what we want to build, where we, we want to abstract away the consensus layers so that we can plug into all the different type of mechanisms that are out there. That, that makes this blockchain system a lot more scalable, right? You might have some people who want to use proof of stake. You might have certain other use cases that have proof of work. 
and one more that has proof of authority. We're just plugging into different nodes that support those types of consensus mechanisms. That'll be an exact, that'll be an exciting future when we get there. As we're getting into the practical applications of blockchain into enterprise-grade solutions, you know, it's all good when, when we paint the picture of fully decentralized, trustless trading, right? Fully open, no third parties in the middle. It's just you and me as a buyer and seller, and we just trust each other because the system takes care of validating things. That's a beautiful picture. In theory. In theory. And I think we're going to get there in some areas faster than others. Bitcoin is obviously proving, yes, the system works. But if you're trying to bring the entire traditional financial world into that type of trustless environment, it's not going to happen, right? You know, it, it just doesn't make any sense because you don't want fraudsters in there minting money in a way or falsifying transactions, ripping off people. That can happen in a like an, a decentralized world, if you think about it that way. Uh, so definitely, we have to have this hybrid approach where you have private chains, stricter consensus mechanisms, and data that is private as well, right? So that gets back to your question. Certain data you can put into the public world, that's the stuff that you put on chain, and certain data you still want to put off chain in traditional database stores. A great example would be my social security number. Right? If I'm transacting with a bank, the bank should know my social security number, but the minute I'm sending information to someone else, I'm sending some coins to someone else, they shouldn't know that information. That would be insanely damaging. Yeah. Yep, yep. So who, what people, uh, or rather entities, would be using Fusion? What, what would be the range of, of players, stakeholders, participants? This is going to sound funny, but everyone who has a financial transaction should be using Fusion, right? <laughs> so when I... Well, thanks for coming. I'm going right yeah. over there now. <laughs> I mean, that's, again, there's the vision of what we want to get to, right? Why do I say everyone? Because Fusion is a financial transaction protocol. So all the libraries, everything that Fusion focuses on is what tools do we have to expose to make transaction easier between counterparty A and counterparty B. These transactions take place in all industries. In the music, when you listen to songs, there's a transaction there. In, in housing, when you're renting or buying a house, again, that's a financial transaction. Right? So are there going to be areas that are quicker to adopt the Fusion Protocol than others? Absolutely. Those are going to be areas that have been underserved in the current market where there are a lot of middlemen clipping out fees in the middle, inefficiencies caused not just from those middlemen, but because there's no, uh, there's no clean data store. There's a lot of different people with different sets of data, which introduces errors into the system of those transactions today. Those are areas where I see adopting blockchain and fusion technology first. And what are they? All right. <laughs> Keeping us on the edge of our seats here. Here's where it comes. In the creative content industry, we're seeing a lot of interest. Uh, creative content is going to be around songs, media, of, uh, like movies, and sculpture artists. And, and songs in particular is easy for people to relate to because there's just been so much press around that, right? As a, as a royalty, as an artist who's writing songs, for example, they don't always understand contracts, and you hear stories all the time like, oh, they wrote all these songs, and at the end of the day, they didn't get paid anything, or they got paid the wrong amount. That's because all this is paper, paper documents, handshakes. There's no clear audit around that. 
right? So we want to put that onto the chain. We want to put structured financial instruments around it. The same type of structured financial instruments that I traded in Wall Street can be applied and, and serve the same purpose in the creative content place, right? Uh, I can give you an example if that helps. Sure, please. <laughs> so in, in, um, in finance, you have something called a bond. A bond is just a loan where I lend you a certain amount of money and you pay me back that money in a certain amount of time. Let's say it's one year. And in return, I also get interest from you as a lender. In the song world, you can see that as I will lend you, the artist, some money and you will pledge your song as an asset collateral, right, to make sure that you, you, know, you don't go belly up. I have some kind of risk deleveraging on my side, and then you'll pay me back the money over time. So the asset that you're actually pledging as collateral is going to be your song. You're now able to monetize that song that you've created. In return, you've got some money to help fund your next project. And so we're putting the financial bond instrument into this creative content world. Does that, is that a good example? Yeah, yeah okay. no, I think it's a good example, and then presumably you'll uh, other permutations within that use case would be the, uh, the the range of artists who made that recording having smart contracts that dictate when there is a sale of the song that you know, the drummer gets her cut, the bassist gets his cut, and yeah. everything is distributed according. That gets into both the licensing and the royalties, right? So there are lots of these different type of licenses out there, but again, you can now enforce this type of, you can use the fact that it's a digital asset, you can license this digital asset out and track the consumption of that digital asset, which translates to the royalty payments. And through smart contracts or holders of these tokens, you can allocate the royalties to the right people, or you can pledge these royalties as some type of collateral for a bond or some other type of future instrument. I mean, this is very exciting when we start talking about you know, future royalties, partaking to share the future royalties for loans today or put it in a more retail-friendly way, invest in your artist, right? You know, here's some money here and then you're gonna earn a, a percentage of their future royalties. Right, got it. That's a, that's a good use case. Yeah. How do you digitize an asset? The beauty with Fusion is it's just like a click. I mean, digitized asset sounds very fancy, but all it is, we can create, our functions let you create a digital asset. It's a, it's a representation or a pointer to the real thing, right? Whatever that real thing is going to be. It creates a token on our system on the blockchain now, and then you can control things like, well, what's the supply of this asset? Basically, how many shares do I have around it? And is it, you can set up some attributes, some descriptive information around this. Is it a song? It's a song, the 1980s song, anything that you want to do. And then what typically happens is, right now, you would have a pointer that points to the physical real-world license or title that says, yes, this is a valid token, right? There's still a lot of questions that we're working out with governments and, like, you know, they have to recognize legally that this digital representation is correct and, and is legally enforceable to the paper document, but the governments are, are moving in the right direction. So what's, what's to stop me then from uh, trying to collateralize, trying to tokenize my very valuable sneakers, and you guys create tokens for that, uh, and then what's to stop me from going to you know, a Fusion competitor and tokenizing my sneakers again on their platform? Right. 
Well, obviously, you, you have bad players, right? So, I mean, with this, good sneakers. With good sneakers, right? So, this is where that layer of control does have to come in. Now, the sneakers is important, but usually what you have is someone who audits you, right? There's an agent that audits you and says, hey, this person does actually have one pair of sneakers, not two. Or, so that, that then is, is what's called an oracle? An oracle looks at information. It, it basically monitors information. Think of it as monitoring weather or stock prices and says, yes, I recognize this is the number, this is the validated number, and you can, it'll trigger all the different smart contract conditions out there. Because when you're in a decentralized type of environment, someone still has to provide you uh, an information of truth, right? right? Like for example, if I talk to you today, I'm stuck in this room, and I ask, hey, what's the weather outside? You could tell me that it's sunny, and someone else can come in and tell me that it's cloudy. Well, who do I believe? Well, that's what an oracle is meant to be. They'll be like, okay, I trust you because you're the oracle, so I'm going to say that it's sunny, not cloudy. But um, an auditor, if I can give an example in the financial terms, right? It, you may have heard of things called stable coins. Right? Yes. Stable coins, what they do is they either peg themselves to, let's just use the dollar right now, and some of these stable coins actually hold assets against it. They'll say that for every one stable coin that I mint, I have one dollar of asset against that. That is held, it's held in custody somewhere. somewhere. In custody, so, yeah. yep. So then, Cora, Cora does something similar, do they not? Or do you happen to know about them? Um, Cora, Cora, I don't. Okay, but not, but won't leave them out as an yeah, example. Yeah, yeah. But I'm, again, there are so many stable. It's an exactly sure. very exciting space where a lot of stable coins are coming out. Now there are the, the popular stable coins are going to be like Tether, who you've heard of, which I'm going to use as an example of what not to do. <laughs> there are also Gemini dollars and Paxos, right? Now, we, we started this conversation saying somebody's going to come in here and check that you actually have the asset to back your, your digital token representation up. So someone like a Gemini and a Paxos, they have independent auditors that come in and check periodically and say, yes, for every dollar that you minted, you really do have a dollar behind you. Tether, I mean, they were one of the first one of the first and most successful stable coins out there, they ran into a little bit of uh, hot water where they weren't fully able to validate that they actually have the assets behind them. And last I checked, they still haven't, right? So there's, they've lost a little bit of their sheen, right? But I mean, that's, that's a case where potentially maybe they have an empty warehouse. I'm, I'm not saying they do, right? right. But, but there is that sense but of... They, they've yet to really validate that there's a, they have a one-to-one -one collateralized... Yes, correct. And so that's where the risk comes in. Is someone minting more dollars than they actually should be? Maybe, right? We don't know. So that, that goes back to your original question. How do you trust the counterparties? How to trust these tokens? Again, that's why we have controlled environments right now with where people go to exchange platforms. We validate who you are. And, and this is what I'm observing across all exchanges, right? All, all types of these tokenization platforms. They validate who the person is as they're tokenizing things. They make sure there are no scam, there are no bad players out there because that's destructive for the adoption of this digital environment. So everybody's being very careful right now, right? Um, ICOs notwithstanding, <laughs> okay, you know, the ICOs, the initial uh, token offerings that took place last year. Yeah, and that are happening at such a much lower level as a result of that. Yeah, because it's always the case when you think back to if there's easy 
Now, I put quotations, easy, dumb money. I don't mean that in a bad way, but when you think about 2000, 1990, uh, late 1990s, 2000, there was a dot-com boom, right? right? And people were just randomly slapping dot-com on their thing. It doesn't matter if the people had no experience, no assets backing themselves up. Investors were just throwing money to, to their IPOs. So what's the nice, it was like the equivalent, a repeat of that. Wow, this is exciting. I'm seeing my friends invest in ICOs. They go up like 10 times. I'm going to jump into this project too. And so you have some bad players who go in there and then ruin it for the rest of the people, unfortunately. They're like just, they're just scams and they take money away from, from poor investors, you know. Yep, part of the hype cycle. Yeah, part of the hype cycle. In reading your uh, literature, you talk about something called quantum swaps. Mm. Can you... Uh, that was a term that was new to me. Can you talk about that and what that is? A quantum swap is just a tool that lets me exchange things, right? So it lets me set an asset that I want to sell, and it also lets me define what asset I want to receive. If we abstract that away today, I want to go and buy burgers today, you know? So what asset do I want to receive? It's a burger. And what asset do I want to, quote, sell? Well, it's that $7 that I'm going to pay for that burger. So that's what a quantum swap enables. Remember, Fusion is a financial protocol, so we're, we're taking all these basic financial transaction steps, right, and providing them into nice little libraries that you can call. The quantum swap also has additional features where it lets you define who you want to transact with. Do you want this to be a public type of order where everybody can say, I want to go and buy that burger, or do I just want to off? You know, I just want to say, I want to buy a burger from uh, Burger King or McDonald's. I can limit who sees my order. And I can also do things like control how many fills that I have in this order. And this is more common in the equity markets or any financial markets. You have situations where you want to fully fill the order in one go that says, if you cannot fill me on this full burger usually, then I'm not interested in a partial burger, right? I mean, that makes a lot of sense. But um, you know, there are other instruments where you might be interested in partial fills. For example, I am going to go and open up my investment and you need to, I'm trying to raise $5 million. I will take partial fills there of like 100,000, 200,000 as I get to my $5 million. So that's what a quantum swap enables. What do you see as the use cases for the kinds of assets that will be tokenized? And what's, what's going to be tokenized? First, uh, what are the uh, low-hanging fruit? That's a very, that's a very big question, right? Uh, so what will be tokenized first? You're seeing it now. I mean, obviously what's been tokenized first has been this crypto tokens. It's proven that it's worked, right? When you think of Bitcoin, you think of ETH, right? Those are tokens that are just digital currencies that have, that have kind of happened. But those aren't actually assets that have been tokenized. Yeah. Those have been exactly. created out of thin air, thus the term ether. Yeah. In a way, right? I like, I like that analogy, right? So, but, but it proves that a tokenized representation of something, what is that something? It's the concept of value, value. exactly. Yes. So that's, that's where I want to start with, right? Then you want to start tokenizing. You want to have asset-backed. This is where you get into asset-backed tokens. Right? We're seeing these assets coming through things that people understand first. Gold. Okay, I understand that, it's, you know, that this is gold. Real estate, right? That's gotten a lot of traction because it's a great investment, but it's out of the hands of a lot of, um, a lot of normal people. They just don't have that much cash to invest and go and buy a building, but they can buy fractions of a building. 
This is why the digital tokenization makes a lot of sense. Again, you can fractionalize ownership of the asset. Right? So real estate is really good. Uh, what we're also seeing being tokenized are going to be currencies are being tokenized. You're going to laugh at that, right? I mean, this goes back to stable coins. When I remember when I gave the example of US dollars, like, why are you digitizing a currency? I mean, it's already there, right? You can transfer dollars here and there. You need a stable, a stable coin, but a stable currency that you can peg all your transactions against. Right? But, so people are t tokenizing. Look, the concept of a US dollar, that store of value, that is, again, something that I want to tokenize. That same stable representation of financial value that I can use to buy and sell assets because I need something stable to buy and sell assets. Where I think the tokenization of the fiat currencies really helps is speeding up the transactions. If I want to send cash to somebody in a region that's, let's say, underbanked, right, remittance area, right, that will help a lot because right now that's stuck with middlemen. You know, there's no direct relationship. Again, there's no one blockchain that people can just say, I want to send my money to someone over there in, let's just say, South America or, you know, Asia. I'm here in the States. Like, there the remittance fees are pretty high because right. it, it's just how the structure is today. You have banks talking to another bank. Bank B has to validate that, yes, this, this wire transfer is valid, and then they'll deposit it to the actual person who you sent the money to. What other assets make sense to, to tokenize? So we had mentioned real estate. We had mentioned like these fiat currencies. We had mentioned gold. And now we're starting to look at some of the more underserved areas, I mentioned songs and media content originally, right? I'm definitely seeing a strong interest. I'm talking to people, four different companies already who are trying to tokenize these type of assets. I'm also talking to uh, assets that have part, kind of the people that just don't understand is it's not in the main market like a future earnings of a merchant, for example. Right? This, is, this is just something very esoteric that people don't think about. Yeah. But it's actually an investment vehicle. Like, um, there's a whole industry right now around what they call the cash advance. Where I, I, I met a company last night, in fact, doing this at Adventure Crush this uh, is, event. This is great. So, so what happens here, in, in essence, is a merchant will pledge a portion of their future earnings. So let's say it's six months of earnings into the future for some cash today, hence the term cash advance. Right? Now, that's been a very niche industry, but if you're able to tokenize these cash advances, basically add the transparency into the collateral that blockchain brings, then all the investors now, you're opening up a whole new avenue of investors, right? Like a traditional investment bank, the volume in these kind of cash advances isn't big enough for them to justify the investment. But you and me or other high net worth individuals, if we want to pick up these type of high return, high yieldy type of instruments, it makes a lot of sense. But I had no avenue to do it until now, right? Mm -hmm. You know, we digitize this earnings and we're putting it onto a platform where people can participate in the security. It's very exciting for me when I, when I look at that space. Yeah, that is cool stuff. So who are Fusion's uh, existing customers and, and who, who do you hope to bring on? Yeah. The existing customers are going to be around the areas that I mentioned earlier, right? I mean, these are all areas where there are inefficiencies. They're just, they're, they're maybe this, the underserved areas. They're the cross-industries. we got customers in the, in the songs, creative content side. We've got asset managers who are looking at us. We definitely have a lot of 
talks going with exchanges and custodians right now because there's a whole industry right that's springing up around this whole digital economy and all these players in a way are recreating the brick and mortar or the traditional financial system in this digital economy right so you know uh, you know when you think about Binance, for example, right? I'm just giving them, not saying they're a client, but they're just an exchange that people, a lot of people know, or Coinbase. These are, these, are, these are just people who help facilitate transactions in this new digital world. We can talk with a lot of people like them. Interestingly enough, we also have clients or you know, talks with central banks of certain governments we're exploring, and, and what are we exploring with them? taking their stable coins, helping them settle with other central banks, right? I mean, despite the fact that you hear governments and, and regulators are very much against crypto tokens and whatnot, it's half true, right? You know, they see the benefits of the technology, but they're very conservative, number one, for themselves, and number two, they have to protect consumers. I mean, the last thing you want to do is say, oh, you know what? I just invested in this stable coin with this central bank, and it was a complete scam. Nobody wants to hear that. Right. I mean, it, it, in a way, it's their job to go slowly and prudently. Exactly. So we're talking with entities like these. We're like, look, what can we do to help you adopt this technology? You want to take a stable coin and you want to swap it or settle with another bank, for example, or you want to create a bond out around, around this stable coin. How can we help you? Right? We're only going to get there by working together with the regulators, with the governments, with the private, with the private organizations. Yeah, totally. Um, so broadening it out, um, what kind of stuff are you seeing in digital uh, rather distributed ledger technology that that you think is cool that, that that may not be ready for prime time yet, but holds the promise of being uh, just really interesting, perhaps world changing. It'll be a bit unfair because I think the things that we're working on right now around this distributed interoperability is very exciting for us. Right, so this is where we can actually connect to any type of blockchain, any type of off, even off-chain data system, and trust the, the network to take care of things, right? I mean, when, I think a lot of people have heard the term trustless when it comes to blockchain, right? It's a little misleading because the term doesn't mean, hey, no trust or anything like that. There's actually, what it means is I'm removing the middlemen who typically provide the trust and charge a fee for that trust, and I'm putting that trust onto the blockchain, right? So if we have any technology that can connect different siloed marketplaces that can hold the different assets in these, what they call wallets or, or any type of custodian, in a trustless fashion, where the network is fully, is the, is the source of trust there, that's a very exciting development for me, right? Another thing that's exciting for me, of course, is just to see the number of assets that are actually putting, the real world assets that are coming into the blockchain world. I mean, there are bonds being issued on blockchain. There are actual uh, governments who are looking at putting their entire government agency workflows into blockchain. I just came back from Dubai, and the prince there, of course, had given the mandate that by 2020, all government agencies have to put their workflows paperless on blockchain. That is fast. Yeah. <laughs> so there's... the. Um, 
there's a blockchain type of fervor that's actually happening there because they're feeling the pressure from the government to adopt this technology, right? And of course, there are going to be cases where right, it, the use case doesn't actually fit being on blockchain, but it is forcing the innovation to happen. When I was there, you know, putting on the full supply chain onto a blockchain when it comes to trade, import, export, that made a lot of sense. You know, the land rights ownership, you know, traditionally, and here in the U.S., we're trying to do it too, but they're putting that onto blockchain too. Like, these are real impactful items that you will put onto the blockchain, and that, that definitely excites me. Yeah, I mean, it, it's less about the technology for me than it is about the adoption, in a way. That, that oh, yeah. Is. No, I mean, the, the technology, I mean, nobody, nobody says anymore, hey, you know what? I've got a business that's, you know, HTTPS uh, enabled. Yeah. It's, no, no, that's just what allows you to provide the service or the solution. So it, it's the use cases of those services and solutions that are the exciting things. Yeah, yeah, I mean... There, that is true. And high level, what supports these use cases, of course, the people pushing for the innovation. And there are some real constraints around this thing that people are solving right now as far as like how many transactions can I process per second, you know, with a blockchain. What people do fail to understand a lot of times, it takes longer to validate things across this chain. So there is a, there is a bandwidth right now as to how many transactions we can validate per second. Sure. But that's ever increasing. There are all different technology companies out there who are making leaps and bounds where we're close to processing as many transactions per second as, say, a MasterCard or a Visa. Right, right. right. That's, that's, that's currently the, the standard that's being uh, yes. pointed to as you know, mass adoption viability. Correct. And so, again, yes, that's a technology improvement that I'm excited about, but it solves the use case of adoption, right? You know, I'm not going to use this thing if I have to wait five minutes, you know, to see that my transaction's been validated. Yeah. So I understand you guys are going to be uh, part of the Digital Asset Summit that's coming up. Talk about uh, Fusion's role in that and yeah. when is it, where is it? Oh. So it, the Digital Asset Summit is taking place here in New York. Fusion is going to be a, basically a title sponsor of that. And it's happening in, let's just say, mid-May, okay? And uh, the, we're very excited about this because it brings together traditional finance companies, the big names, right? When you think of Goldman Sachs, you think of JP Morgan. It brings together technology adopters to one place. And, of course, it brings together other type of banks and exchanges who are in this digital marketplace. That's why it's called the Digital Asset Summary. Right? And the goal of this thing is to get all the participants in this digital economy around the table, right, to become aware, what are the challenges that we have to solve, what are the exciting innovations that each side is working on, so that we can actually collectively move the adoption forward. And that goes back to just adoption. That's what makes it a very exciting time for us. Great. And this will be a, a publicly available, or is this, or is this a, an industry private uh, initiative? It's publicly available, but there is a cost to purchase the tickets. Yeah. Uh, Which is on the steep side. <laughs> yeah. I, I can't comment on whether it's steep or not, but it's a little more than what people I think. I mean, when you think of... Uh, so it's more than the 10 bucks that we need for yeah, the New York Tech meetup. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, you know, it's, 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 it's a big league industry conference. Yeah, it's a big, it's a big league industry conference. Yeah. And, and it's... 
I like it because like consensus is a very big. You've heard of consensus, big, big, you know, com- sure, yeah. Ethereum consensus, Joe Lubin's consensus. Yeah, and that is a very powerful meetup type of conference that people go to. More, more public. This digital asset summit is specialized to institutional types of investors. There's a focus around how can we bring, right, you know, institutions to adopt this digital economy. So, how can people learn more about Fusion and get in touch with you? Best way is just to go to fusion.org, and then you can just contact us directly from the website. Well, thank you so much for joining me. Appreciate it. It's been a pleasure.